0: It's going to take longer than you think. It's going to cost more than you think, but be willing to fail, fail fast, pivot, and then keep going.
1: Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. I'm excited to welcome Andy Morehouse, founder and CEO of Tailwind. Andy grew up in an entrepreneurial family, working for over a decade in his dad's HR tech startup before leaving to launch his own venture. He'll talk about his experience starting Tailwind, a sales tech platform designed to revolutionize sales collateral and streamline the proposal process. Andy is no stranger to the highs and lows of the startup world. He'll share stories of early missteps, hiring too quickly, nearly having to shutter Tailwind when two engineering teams couldn't collaborate, and the tough lessons around letting people go. While talking us through Tailwind's origin story, Andy also opens up about the personal side of being a founder, from balancing the demands of a growing family to managing the roller coaster of emotions in a scaling company. His journey underscores the importance of persistence, learning from failure, and refusing to compromise on your vision. Excited today to welcome Andy Morehouse coming to us from Temecula, California. Andy, thanks so much for being in the hot seat on In the Thick of It today.
0: Of course, my pleasure, Scott.
1: Glad, glad to have you here. Well, hey, so you're, you're in Southern California. Is that where you grew up?
0: Yep. Born and raised in uh, SoCal. So, originally born in Long Beach and then moved out to the Temecula area when I was a kid. So, my parents raised me out here and then spent most of my life here. Went to school up in Orange County, LA area, met my wife, and then moved right back to Temecula <laughs> about, I guess it was 13 years ago, and have been here ever since. You haven't gone far.
1: What was it growing up in Temecula? I mean, there's, a, there's a big wine region down there, which I think most people think of Northern California when they think of wine, but it's big for that. What was it like growing up?
0: Yeah, so we're, if you don't know Temecula, we're situated a little inland, kind of beyond the, the mountain range along the coast of Southern California. And we're kind of between what you'd think of as San Diego and LA and Orange County. And what happened was this area was largely unpopulated, even into the 70s and 80s. And especially in the late 80s and the 1990s, a lot of people that lived and worked in San Diego or Orange County started moving and buying homes and property out here in Temecula and then would commute to work. And so this ended up becoming one of the fastest growing places, not only in California, but in the United States for a few years in the 1990s. So when I moved here, and this will date me, so in 1989, I was seven years old and moved out here. There were 7,000 people in this entire valley, and I think today there's over a million. So that'll give you wow. how much it's grown. A uh, very rural area. I think we had one shopping center. There was one Target <laughs> and a shopping center kind of built around that. Everything else was dirt, and it's amazing just how much it's, it's been growing in the last 30 years. So, yep, gone from a small town to-
1: And now I imagine you have traffic.
0: Yeah, tons of traffic. We went from a small town to now sort of a, a big town. And yeah, we got. Uh, it's not as bad as LA, the traffic, certainly not, but it is starting to get there. It's California after all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what kinds of things were you into as a kid?
0: Yeah, I played hockey, quite a bit of hockey. We had a, a, a good roller hockey community out here. There wasn't a lot of ice in Southern California, so <laughs> we did the roller thing. But there was a pretty good group of kids that, that would do that. I did bike, like BMX bikes and uh, soccer. So what do you think of as a typical kid? getting out on playing around. It was interesting though, because back in those days when it was such a small town, I remember my parents didn't mind me just being out as a nine-year-old going all over town. And I think of that today, I have four kids. I know I would not let them (laughs) roam around on their own side. So I don't know if that's part of a small town growing up or, or a sign of the times we live in. I'll let everybody else figure that one out.
1: Yeah. I can relate to a certain extent. Like I didn't have free roam of the whole town and, and the, the place I grew up wasn't quite, it wasn't huge, but it wasn't quite that small either. But, and you were talking, you said you were seven in 1989. So we're probably a year, two years older. The Mighty Ducks came out when I was in fourth grade, I think, and Mm -hmm. grew up here in Texas. And man, we played roller hockey in my driveway every day after school. And live that, played in a, in a rec league, and anyway, you're, you're bringing back fun memories. Yeah. The Flying V, right? That movie was the great. The Flying V, that's right. Quack, quack. <laughs> All right. So, grew up, what kind of student were you? Were you really studious? Were you that 4-0 valedictorian, salutatorian type? Mm-hmm.
0: I was a pretty good student when I was younger. And then when I turned 15, I went from my favorite subjects being math and uh history to all of a sudden picking up a guitar <laughs> and starting to become interested in, in some of the arts. So I was a little eclectic because I really was into philosophy and history and math, but then I started singing and playing guitar and, and getting into creative writing. I almost saw this kind of pivot in my interests when I uh, started getting into high school. And that seemed to, to coincide with a drop in my conscientiousness, it seemed like. <laughs> but I did, I had a I think I finished close to a 4.0 in high school. Didn't do as well in, in college. I was so focused on a lot of creative pursuits. But yeah, it's interesting. You know, it it makes me think about just the whole conversation going on about higher education right now and its role. I think that you know a lot of kids just have different interests and different methods of learning, and sometimes you have in a rigid academic environment that's focused on rule following and high conscientiousness that doesn't go really well for kids that are really highly creative and yet are no less talented or or smart. So anyway, it's just it brings back some memories of just how, for me, things really shifted where I went from like this top A student and that's what really mattered was the marks to then shifting a little bit more to I was more interested in content, what I was actually learning and things I was creating and I didn't really care anymore about the grades. So that was my experience.
1: Okay. Do you still have creative outlets for music or or other creative pursuits?
0: I do. Yeah. So a couple of my hobbies, I'm I'm a filmmaker. I wrote and directed a short film a few years ago that we had in some festivals, and that was really fulfilling. And as far as music, I help out on the weekends and do music for a local church out here in Southern California. So I play guitar and sing for them. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say definitely I continue on in, in some of those pursuits outside of kind of the, the daily grind of running a, a software startup.
1: Yeah. All right. You mentioned college. You went to Biola. Is that right? hmm. So Southern California as well. L.A. area.
0: Yeah, that, that's up in La Mirada, which is kind of right. I think it's technically L.A. County, but it's really right on the border of North Orange County and and south kind of southeastern uh, L.A. County.
1: Okay. What did you what did you study in college?
0: So I, I bounced around a little bit. I started out in business as my in my first semester. And I think I was in my first day of classes when I decided I did not want to do business. <laughs> and so I, I switched from business to filmmaking, film studies as my major. I did that for a semester or two. And then I switched again to, I think it was English with a focus in creative writing and that's where I, I finished out. And interestingly, when I was going into my senior year, I ended up dropping out of college, so I never even finished my degree, and I took a sales job. I was offered a, a full-time sales position in LA for an engineering firm. That They were a manufacturer's representative agency, so they, would, they were essentially an outsourced sales team that repped over 20 different manufacturers and engineered products. These were products that were used in a lot of manufacturing contexts. So things like industrial lubricants and conveyor belts and and motors and pumps and that and that sort of thing. And so I was offered a position to be an outside sales rep. And I decided to leave school and and just jump right into the workforce. And then I've been in sales
1: ever since. That's a you got that close to the finish and you decided to make a major jump. How did that sit with your with your parents? <laughs> That's a good, good question. You know, I think, I think they knew my dad didn't,
0: didn't finish college either. He just went to high school and he's also an entrepreneur. So I had the good fortune to work with him for many years, but he started a software company in the mid nineties that he and I were at up through 2019, 2020 when that company sold. And so I think he kind of understood, understood where I was at, but I would say at first they were disappointed, but then, you know, kind of jumping into a. A successful sales career. That faded over time, but I did feel some disappointment coming from the family at first.
1: How did that job opportunity even present itself? Was there family, friends, somebody that you knew that said, hey, Andy, why don't you check this out? Or were you looking Mm -hmm. to move on from school?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I was not looking. I was actually planning to continue at school. It was sort of an unsolicited offer and it did come through a friend so I had a I had a good friend growing up, his name is Corey, and it was kind of family that his family knew that ran this engineering firm. And that individual was looking to hire a salesperson. And so they were sort of talking with with friends, you know, well, do you know anybody that that I could bring in? And I think that the what I the story I heard is that my friend told my eventual boss that that ran this organization, said, Well, I have a friend and I just know that growing up, uh, Andy always convinced us as as a group of friends to do something we didn't want to do. And then we all ended up having <laughs> fun. And so he always was the one convincing us of everything. So it was sort of that. I think Andy could natural could
1: Natural salesperson. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so That's
0: yeah, great. I got this unsolicited offer and talked about what the business was doing. And for me, it just sounded more interesting and more fun than school. And uh, I jumped into it.
1: And you said you were selling commercial lubricants?
0: Industrial lubricants, vacuum pumps, electric motors, conveyor systems, bearings, industrial size bearings. So these are all engineered products that are are larger and meant for industrial and manufacturing environments. And so one of the fun things about that job is getting to drive around LA to a lot of these OEMs, our original equipment manufacturers, and just see these these different applications these different i mean you walk into a room that's 20,000 square feet and just see a massive system of machines and conveyor belts. And it's like, you know, the old Willy Wonka movie where they got the huge system and it spits out the piece of candy at the end. I got to see a lot of those different kinds of applications around LA, and I'd be talking to them about an electric motor that would would drive this shaft, or I'd be be talking about lubricants they're using on this system over here. And so it was kind of fun seeing how these different pieces fit together to create the products that we use every
1: day. That's a, I love the Willy Wonka analogy there. You know, a lot of manufacturing isn't done here anymore. And I'm curious, what caused you to exit that industry? And, you know, did, was offshoring and manufacturing a part of that?
0: It wasn't a part of it. I think most of the, my decision to, to make a change was where my interests lie. So I think the, the most fun part for me of that part of my career was seeing the application But the products themselves were pretty simple products. And I was really hoping to get into something that was, again, tapping more into my creative side. And so maybe even having something that was more of a challenge from a sales standpoint. So in this role, you could almost think of it like a marketing role, because all of the products were actually bought through distributors. And my job was really more to be a representative that could go and talk to organizations so they could learn about the products and know where they need them and that sort of thing. So I was looking for I think the next step or the graduation into the next challenge for sales. And I went from there uh, into banking and decided very quickly that that wasn't for me. And then I got a call from uh, the CEO of Perceptix which was the software company that my dad had started around 1996. And so this was around 2007, I got a call And it was a group of five of them that had really started this company together. And just as a quick background for for everybody listening, this company was in the HR technology space, and they did employee surveys for enterprise level organizations, and they still do today. And at the time in 2007, the company had less than a million dollars in annual revenue. They had a really cool product, but nobody knew who they were. And so they were looking at expanding their reach and finding someone that could help them with sales and marketing. And that's where I came in. And so because I, my dad was one of the founders there, his partner who was the CEO said, well, what about your son? He's, he's been out there selling, maybe he can come help us. And so I got a call and, and the CEO said, well, hey, what do you think about about coming and selling HR software? And I was like, I don't know. And how he sold me, he said, well, here's what you're gonna be doing. You're gonna be going into boardrooms and you're gonna be standing toe to toe with executives of companies, thousands of employees, and you know the chief human resources officer, and convincing them that they need to use this software to listen to their people. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. That sounds like a challenge. So I jumped in, and I started helping them build their sales and marketing over the next 10 years. And we went from starting with just the six of us to now the company today has nearly 400 employees, and we grew the revenue by over those 10 years by something like 3,000%. And so we had a lot of success over those years.
1: So you said the company was started in the early 90s or mid 90s. And Mm -hmm. in the mid to late 2000s, they were only doing a million dollars in revenue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you said in a 10 year period, you did 3000% growth. Yeah. So
0: we went from, I think in 2008, it was under a million dollars in revenue. And by 2019, 2018, 2019, we were close to I think 30 million annually in revenue.
1: What do you attribute that massive growth
0: to? So I can answer that just giving a little history of the space. If you go back decades, employee surveys have always been around. It used to be called employee morale or employee satisfaction. But an organization called Gallup came out and came up with this term called employee engagement. And it really kind of transformed that industry and companies started putting aside budgets on employee engagement. The idea was if we can get our employees to be more engaged and passionate in their work every day, then we're going to get more productivity as a result. And so what you had were these surveys that large consulting firms would go in and do with the objective of finding out, well, how engaged are they? And if they're not, you know, what are the reasons that they're not engaged and then how can we drive further engagement? But it was not online. This is 1996, and so you'd use scantron forms, and it would take months for consultants to basically analyze this data. Then they would send these binders, just reams of pages with all these results, back to leaders across these organizations to say, "Okay, here's what you need to fix to get these people more engaged." And and so Perceptics came along in '96 when Netscape Navigator first was on the scene, and we started seeing the the web. And they built an online real-time survey tool. And so as employees were asked questions about their work experience, it was building reports for leaders at the same time in real time. So you weren't waiting for months to get results. And so this really was pretty novel. It was very ahead of its time. And for a long time, I would say for the next 10 years or so, many companies weren't ready for this kind of new technology and real-time approach. And the big reason for that is because they were still really focused on the scientific research behind what questions you ask of employees and how you validate the data and how you arrive at what's important to work on. So there was a whole discipline around IO psychology where you would learn how to do regression modeling and, and these different ways that you can arrive at You know, what are these items that are correlated to engagement that are important? And so they're looking for PhD experts that tell them what to work on. And Perceptix had a very novel approach where instead of doing that, we'd we'd say, you should look at where are your high performing, highly engaged employees, and then look at everybody else who's not. And let's create two profiles and compare them, and let's understand where do they differ. Where is it that our highly engaged employees see us doing really well that everybody else just does not? And those should be the issues that you should focus on. And that was a very different philosophy than what you'd learn in school or what all these consulting firms say you're supposed to work on. And so we had a lot of organizations just telling us, you know, no, this is the wrong way to do this. You guys don't know what you're doing. And we're scared of your technology, (laughs) this sort of thing. So, It was about 2008 when we had the economic downturn back the housing crisis. Remember that? You know, you had Gallup, for example. They might charge a company like Wells Fargo a million dollars a year to do an annual employee survey. I mean, those were real numbers that were being spent back then. And so at that time, when you had the economic downturn, now you have the question, well, how do we cut budgets, right? How do we save some money? And so we were able to come in and be very competitive against some of these big consulting firms with frankly, a technology that was a lot more superior. And so if we can save hundreds of thousands of dollars, now they're starting to, to say, okay, well, I'm more open to, to what you have. And also I think part of it too is that we got better and better at positioning that story and why you should be thinking about employee engagement this kind of way. And so they're kind of hit that tipping point around 2010, I would say, where almost every large organization that actually found us started using us. And so fast forward to 2016, I'd say, uh, almost all of the large consulting firms that had been dominating that industry were no longer even in the space anymore. And so Perceptix became wow. one of the dominant players in that market. And then there were a few new technology entrants. You just displaced all of yeah. them. Yeah, we sure did. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it was, it was a game of getting the word out, kind of re-educating I mean, it was, it was one of those leapfrog events, is really how you can think of it. We came along with a technology that was so far better than the way that it had been done for so long that for a while people just didn't get it. But then there came a time where we just started quickly gaining market share. And from a marketing perspective, we didn't do a lot of uh, advertising, we did a lot of events. And I think towards the end of my time there, we were going to about 25 events a year and many of those were more intimate kind of high end events that would invite about a 100 senior hr leaders of fortune 1000 companies and then give you an opp- give us an opportunity to sit down face to face one on one almost like you think of speed dating but for business and so we were doing a lot of those and and landed a lot of business from those kind of events and then we had a lot of referral business a lot of our clients telling everybody they could think about about perceptic so It was a very fun time. We had one of those scenarios where we just had a lot of raving fans, if you've read that book, about our technology. And part of it too is that it wasn't just a software. There was a big component of what we did that was was services. And so it wasn't like a SurveyMonkey or some of these new survey technologies where you just buy a subscription and you set it up yourself. We had a project team that would work together with the client and help them set it up, help them set up the reporting structures, get the right kinds of reports in the hands of leaders, and a lot of these larger companies do things differently than one another, and so that, that was very helpful. And that kind of framework actually became some of the framework for, for what I'm doing now with Tailwind. Even though we're not in the HR space, we're in the sales technology space, we very much have a services component to what we're doing and we're not just a SaaS tool.
1: I wanna to jump back for a second. Mm-hmm. You talked about the 2008 downturn being part of the catalyst that, that really got you guys going. I may be speaking for way too many people here, but I know that the way that my brain is wired, when I when I start thinking about major economic events, my mind goes to to doom and gloom. And as I hear you talk about that story, I think the way that we need to be looking at these things is what opportunity does this create? Because that created yeah. a massive opportunity for you.
0: That's right. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, a lot of companies were tightening their belts and and looking at ways they can cut budgets and that ultimately became the opportunity for us to pounce because we were in a scenario where we were undercutting these big competitors and so as soon as all these companies where they were locked in in a certain way of doing things unwilling to even consider us it's like no we're good we got it figured out now they're looking for a way to cut their budget it's almost like okay now they're willing to look at us and because we were already positioned for That, it it ended up being kind of a a windfall for us and starting to pick up clients. So it is very interesting thinking about that time because I remember in 2008, 2009, so many companies seeing a downturn. Meanwhile, this is when we're finally taking off. And to your point, I think that as organizations, we need to be always looking at the market conditions, uh, even cultural situations, as, as opportunities to meet people where they are. You know, the market's always going to have ups and downs, and that's just going to be part of life. But, you know, like think of COVID. COVID is another great example. So at Perceptix, when COVID happened, now all these people are being sent home and it's all becoming work from home, and we're no longer working together in an office. I mean, this is a massive change in the way that people work. And so this becomes an opportunity, uh, especially as an employee engagement and HR organization, to say, man we really need to make sure that we're talking to our people and understanding how this is impacting their experience with work and impacting their family lives and making sure that we're doing everything we can as an organization to kind of rise to the challenges that they have now whereas a lot of companies just thought well because you know employees are are not in the office we're not going to do a survey it's like no no this is more than ever we we need to be talking to our people now so that was an example from from the perceptix days but i think whether it's economic changes or social changes or, or whatever it might be, I think you, we always should be asking the question, how are we meeting our potential buyers where they are? Because just because economic downturn doesn't mean that we can't do that, we can't provide value, we can.
1: Yeah. A couple other things that you, you mentioned in there that jumped out at me. Number one, you talked about, I'm gonna paraphrase and, and maybe, maybe this isn't exactly right, but it seems like you guys were maybe a little bit early in the late 90s and early 2000s, you were a little bit early to market with this and the market wasn't ready for it. Is that a fair thing?
0: I think definitely, yeah. The way that our CEO liked to describe it is like we were the the pimply nerd that showed up to prom in the Ferrari.
1: (laughs) Not quite Bill Gates yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so we had this uh, amazing technology that people just didn't understand and they weren't ready for, but uh, over time, we were in the right place at the right time and we were ahead of it for sure.
1: You know, I think I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it again here. In the early 2000s, you could walk into Best Buy and Circuit City back when there was a Circuit City and there were these e-readers from Sony and Toshiba and and all these different companies and you would get your book on a little flash drive kind of a thing. Sony used to have their little memory stick that was a proprietary deal and Anyway, so so these e readers were there, and they were there for a couple of years, and then they just disappeared. And then a little bit later, late two thousands, early two thousand tens, we all know Amazon comes along with this little thing called a Kindle, and it was really not that far different from what these others had. The the distribution for the content was definitely better. You know, you could get it sent to the device wirelessly and, and so forth. But the market wasn't ready in the early two thousands for that, and given enough time, things, things start to shift. We've actually got another guest that we've, we've had on where very similar story and some of it was the market and some of it was some regulatory things that, that changed and that business ended up failing because he was too early, Mm -hmm. but you guys were able to just stick it out and and pull through.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the Kindle is a great example of that. And I think that also taps into the changing culture in how we work, you know, like people are adopting technology. In a different way. By the time e-readers and Kindle, in particular, really become successful, I think if you go back to those earlier versions, people aren't just living their lives that way yet. They're not. They haven't adopted the technology in that way yet. And so, yeah, I think um, you can be too early. I think certainly, and and I mean that's what companies like Apple, I think, do so well is they, you know, they create this kind of rabid fan base of early adopters. That set the trends that get others to want to be like that or to have that product or to experience life that kind of way. I think about what they're releasing, I think, tomorrow, right? The new Apple Vision Pro. Have you seen that yet?
1: I, I may or may not have one being delivered tomorrow.
0: <laughs> well, if you do, I would love to hear about it. I've been tempted myself.
1: I um, I'm incredibly curious. My expectations are pretty low, but I'm a techie and... Some people are touting this as the future of computing, and, and some have even said the future of business computing, and I'm, uh, I'm eager to put that to the test and, and see. But this is one where I, I honestly think that Apple is early, but if anybody yeah. can do it, they can.
0: It, it's true. I, I think it is pretty early. I mean, I, I look at it and it, it seems a bit odd to think that you're going to put on a set of these huge goggles that you can't see through because if you think about the, the future of this technology, I mean where do they want to get? They want to get like what the promise of Google Glass was where you have transparent glass that you're actually seeing through, not cameras representing the environment back to you. and then overlaid on your real environment, you have basically your whole computing life laid out for you. So it feels like okay they w- they went ahead and just jumped forward before they have the transparent glass and they're gonna just okay, let's put 50 cameras and all these sensors and a big huge battery pack it doesn't seem practical at all but i do think they're setting a foundation for the future i can see this kind of world where instead of walking around with your your iphone or even your your apple watch kind of everything becomes laid out in front of you in just a simple pair of see-through glasses uh, i could see it especially when you consider how good the technology is and some of what they're doing, you'll have to tell me when you try it out. But I mean, being able to just look and it selects the app or it selects the component and then a camera that can just see your your finger there. it, it seems pretty promising the technology, but um, I'm tempted right now because I think it would be even the current first generation of this thing. It's probably going to be pretty amazing for entertainment uh, watching TV and movies. The other thing I like about it is being able to take your, if you use an Apple, which I do, a Mac, it takes that whole environment with your keyboard and mouse. You can use your keyboard and mouse and then puts it in your Apple Vision Pro display. So there's some things about it I think are going to be pretty cool. I can't wait to hear about
1: it. I'm, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Like I'm going to be thinking of all these things <laughs> I want to I do. As an aside, I, I won't tell the full story. Uh, we'll save that for another day. But I still remember the first time I saw somebody out in the wild with Google Glass and Oh my gosh, I totally geeked out. And anyway, <laughs> all right. The other thing that you said a second ago that really jumped out, and and I want to hear more about what the change was, you said you had to change the way you told your story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it was this coalescence of economic conditions, the market being ready for the technology, but changing your story. What was that transition like? What was the story before? And what did the story become that all of a sudden it was clicking?
0: Right. Yeah, great question. So I think for a while, the story was you should stop making people wait when you ask them their feedback. You should be responding right away. And so this was this promise of real-time online technology, and that's a compelling story. But the problem we were running into is that a lot of companies will say, well, yeah, that's great, except we have all this science that goes into the model for how you're supposed to measure employee engagement and how you're supposed to measure what things you need to work on if engagement isn't high for a particular group. And you guys don't have that. You know, you're just telling me you can do it faster. And so you think of the, there's a phrase called engagement model. And if you just Google engagement model, you'll get like 15 pages in Google of all these different diagrams, uh, all these different companies that it will say, you know, we put all this research into this and this and this. And for a long time, these big consulting groups had IO psychologists and respected PhD practitioners that were putting together this science. And they all had different models. You know, So Gallup would come out with a report every year and say 33% of America, the American workforce is engaged, uh, highly engaged, and everybody else is not. And, and here's the, the 12, the, the Gallup 12, Q12 is what they called it. Here's the, the 12 ways that you measure engagement. But then if you went to Aon or Towers or, or Hay Consulting Group, they all had their own measures but they're all you know proprietary and developed by consultants and so the end user the buyers they're saying well you know where's your model where's your scientific research well we were technologists we didn't have any io psychologists on staff uh, or anything like that but so we realized in the late 2000s that that we needed to develop a point of view and i think that that was interesting because there needed to be a point of view around how we approached engagement but it was more than that. We realized we really have to have a point of view for why we're doing this to begin with. When we talk to an organization, why should they be doing a survey with employees? Is it simply that we just wanna give senior executives numbers on a page to see how things are going? No, I, I think at the end of the day, it becomes about the every single employee. It becomes about improving their life. I mean, I, I would go that far. I would say improving the experience they have every day in their job to the point where they're having fun and they're excited to come into work. If we can use a a survey tool to have a conversation with every single person, understand what's frustrating for them, and then prove to them that we're listening and we're going to do something about it for them, then we're showing them they have a voice and they matter. And it makes a difference. And so we started shifting the way we talked to the way I just talked about it. And it started resonating right? It was, it was less about a technology and less about the science and, and more about people and why we're doing this to begin with. There's a great work from Simon Sinek called Start With Why. I'm sure you,
1: you, you've heard of that. Fantastic book. Yeah,
0: that had a big impact on me and I, I saw that right around that time. And so that really impacted how we talked about perceptics. I think that was a big reason why we started having success.
1: You mentioned selling to Fortune 1000 companies. Who was the coolest? company you got to work with. Oh
0: man, there's a few good stories. I had a great experience working with American Airlines. I don't know. Well I'm trying to think of your question here. I don't say I don't think they're the coolest company I got to work with, but it was one of the coolest opportunities to to implement or help drive improvement for an organization. And American Airlines had a tough time. We started working with them I think mid 2010s, around 2015 or so. And there's, you know, a lot of employees that were frustrated about a lot of things and operational issues, and they had not been doing any employee survey. And so this was a new, a new opportunity to have a conversation with everybody. And that was a really fun project to be able to start giving people a voice in that organization and see the results of their voice. And so we even wrapped an app for American Airlines that every employee could have on their, their device, because a lot of their employees, especially working in the airports or on flights, they don't have access to a computer but they do have a lot of these handheld devices they carry around and so we created an app that was specifically designed so people could provide feedback directly to the organization and that was a pretty fun project and i remember i think it was 2016 if i remember correctly when when they became a client but i remember going and presenting to american airlines and normally for this kind of project employee surveys and hr you're meeting with a handful of leaders in the HR department. But I'll never forget this. In this case, I went to Dallas, uh, where where American Airlines is headquartered, in, into their corporate boardroom. And this was a large boardroom with a table that sat probably 40 people. And the, all these executives started filtering, in, and I think there must have been 40 or 50 people that came in the room, which was very unusual.
1: Was that intimidating?
0: It was, yeah. It was, well, it was... It was so uh, surprising because, I mean, I'm used to meeting with four or five, maybe in in a final presentation, even for larger organizations. And we'd meet with someone that's over organizational development, someone that's over HR, someone over talent development, someone over employee communications, those sorts of individuals. And they'd, they'd come together as a group of four or five. So we have 40 or 50 kind of come into the room. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Why is there so many people in here? And they go around and do kind of quick introductions. And it was, you know, SVP of airports, SVP of operations. So, I mean, they brought in their entire executive team. And for them, and I love that they did this because for them, this was an important initiative for not just HR, but for the whole organization, it was very strategic. And so they brought in their whole executive team to to consider hiring us. And so we had a two-hour meeting. I did a demo for quite a long time, then did a QA and a at the end. And there was one gentleman in the middle that was wearing a T-shirt and jeans, and he was the one firing questions at me. So I'm kind of sparring a little bit. And after the meeting, the head of HR at American Airlines pulled me aside and said, "Hey, you did a great job." And I think I think the gentleman's name was Dave. He said, "I think he he really liked your presentation." And he's mentioned he's gesturing to this guy in jeans and a T-shirt. And I ask, "Well, who is that?" Well, that's the president of American Airlines. <laughs> and I. I <laughs> So I had a moment where I, I I felt like I had hit the pinnacle of my sales career when I had just been going toe to toe with the head of American Airlines. That was a pretty cool experience, I would say, from a sales perspective. But probably the coolest company that was my client was Apple. So I actually closed the deal, the largest contract in the history of Perceptics at the time, with Apple, and that was in 2017. And it's funny because that's actually the story that kind of ignited my passion for starting Tailwind. Uh, so I, I got to tell that story because it's, it's so instrumental to how we got things going at Tailwind. So we were working with Apple. Their procurement team invited us to pitch for their survey program. And it was quite a process. I think it was about six months long. They had an RFI they started with, then they invited uh, proposals. We had probably several, I forget how many, but several competitors they were um, looking at in addition to us. And eventually, after you know six months, we, we won the deal. So I did a, a win interview. And Scott, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Every time you win, lose a deal, get on the phone, ask, why did we win? Why did we lose? I love to do that because I always got great insight into how we could keep improving. So this was fun because this was a, a why we won conversation. And I'm used to hearing you won because I loved your team. I loved your product. I love your service. It's always a version of, of those three answers. This time, her name was uh, Amelia. She said, the reason that you won was your sales process. And I'm thinking-
1: That's not something you typically hear.
0: Yeah, no, what do you mean sales process? And that's what I asked. Well, you gotta, you gotta help me understand that one. And she said, well, it's, you know it's been six months, you've sent us an RFP response, you've sent us a proposal you sent us a presentation deck, a couple of videos that you created for us, a brochure, every single piece of content she said that you sent over to us. There wasn't a single typo anywhere,
1: <laughs> right? The absence of typos mm-hmm. was what sealed the deal for you.
0: Yeah, that, that's where it started. And then she went on and said, your responsiveness was same day for everything. So all your competitors made us wait for days or a week every time they sent us something. You always got back to us same day with any piece of content that we asked for. You used our branding. So we put the Apple branding even, even to their font in all of the materials that we sent over to them. Helvetica So she said, it was clear that you cared so much more about our business than your competitors did because everything that you provided was head and shoulders better. And so I'm sitting back like, wow, that's so cool. It's like, I'm, I'm glad we automated a lot of this. <laughs> uh, which she didn't know, you know, she, she probably thought we manually did a lot of this, but some of it we had, we had automated. But the thing that she said at the end that really floored me, she said that experience told us everything that we needed to know about working with the rest of your team. Now that's an amazing thing to think about, right, Scott? Because we think about sales or marketing for that matter, and we know that we are the first impression that potential customers make about our product or service. But what I think we don't always realize is that the experience that people have with me as a salesperson or as you, with you as a salesperson, they're forming an opinion about your company culture, about the work ethic of all of your employees, right? about what it's going to be like working with your team, about how conscientious your team is, based solely on the experience they have with you as a seller and the content you provide. So that hit me like a ton of bricks. Here's the Fortune one-ranked company in the world that just closed the biggest contract in our company's history because of the quality and responsiveness of our sales content. You know, I, I think, if you think about that and you really just unpack that, it should change the way you think about how you're presenting on all your deals. And so for me, that's what was the um, kind of the fire that got started to to get Tailwind going. And so that's what we're doing now. We At Perceptix, we had developed internally our own tool that would automate proposals and it would automate videos and some other content for the sales process. So we could push a button and this stuff would be done and branded and made specific for that deal and we could turn it around within an hour instead of days. So we essentially took that concept and said, what if we can do that for other B2B sales teams? And so myself and and a few partners, most of us came from from Perceptics, that other organization, uh, we started Tailwind and we built a platform that's designed to do exactly what I just talked about with uh, my experience with Apple, where instead of spending hours or weeks manually editing sales content. You have a platform where you can press a button and it builds in real time every piece of content that you're going to need for that deal from contracts to NDAs to proposals to pitch decks even videos. And so that's the the vision for what Tailwind
1: is doing. I want to go back into Perceptix a little bit more but but real quick on that point. You mentioned that it was that engagement or the the sales cycle with Apple that really ignited it at any point before that in the back of your mind were you thinking hey i want to go i want to go do this
0: yeah good question one of my my friends who actually he still works at at perceptic he's their creative director he won't mind me sharing his name uh, scott he and i go back a long ways we're good friends but i think it was around 2014 or 2015 we had built some of those automation tools internally. And one of Scott's roles at, at the company was supporting the sales team with some of the content. And so he came to me and said, hey, what do you think if, if there was a company? What if we could automate this stuff for other sales teams? That could be like a whole company. And I, at the time I was sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> we, don't, we don't have time to think about that. But from that point on, probably about once a year, we had that what if conversation. We had developed some of these resources for our company So we were always coming back to that. Well, what if we could do it for others? But it wasn't until the experience with Apple that I saw just how big of an impact that it really can make. And that's when I started to think seriously about it. But I actually didn't leave Perceptix until the end of 2020, just post uh, COVID getting going. And so we started
1: Tailwind in 2021. All right. Your dad was a co-founder in Perceptix. Growing up, was there a lot of entrepreneurial talk in your home?
0: Yeah. So when, I, when we moved out to Temecula in 89, I was pretty young. My dad had been a refinery operator and then ultimately was promoted to being an engineer for Chevron. And he was at the El Segundo Refinery out here in California for about 10 years. And when he moved out to Temecula, he decided to get into real estate. I think he worked for Century 21 or one of these larger real estate firms for about a month before he decided that he could start his own real estate company and do it better. (laughs) So he, he, in the early 90s, he created a mortgage brokerage firm that primarily did refinancing or purchase loans, and did that for a few years. At one point, I think, had 20 loan officers working for him. So very entrepreneurial. I mean, when he, basically out of high school, gets hired at Chevron to be an entry-level operator at the refinery, and within a few years, was promoted to a full engineer, even though he didn't have an engineering degree. And that was pretty rare for something like that to happen. And the reason why is he just kind of learned everything he could, he just took on everything he could. So he had that entrepreneurial spirit and took that, started a real estate company, went from that, started a, a training company. And then it was during the, the training company that a client said, hey, can you help us do a, a survey? And he thought, well, yeah, sure, we can do that. And as an engineer, he thought, well, what's the best way to do that? And because it was 96, you had just had Netscape Navigator. He didn't have the baggage of having been in that industry for years. He just brought this brand new thinking to it. How could we do this and do it right? Well, we should build it online. It should be real time. And so uh, started that, and that's how Perceptics got started. So today, my dad, his name is Jack Morehouse. So he, he was the one that started that company. He's retired. He still lives here in Temecula. But yeah, today Perceptix is going strong. I think they have nearly 400 employees. They're working with dozens of the Fortune 100, still servicing millions of people across the globe.
1: When you decided to leave, had your dad and the CEO that actually called you to to ask you to come on board, were they still with the business, or had they had they moved on? They had both exited
0: a couple of years prior, so they were getting closer to retirement age and looking to, to step back. And so one of the original co-founders, John Borland, stepped in as the new CEO. And Jack and Dave, who was the original CEO, they decided to retire and step away from it. And it was also during that time that private equity firm came in in 2019, I think it was, and took a stake in the business. And so, as with every organization, when you grow, things start to change. And you go from being a small entrepreneurial startup to being very agile, nimble, and and kind of a lot of people are wearing a lot of hats to, well, then we got to a point where we had grown up and priorities change, strategies change. And so it seemed like there was a, a few of us that didn't quite fit. We weren't the best fit anymore for where the organization had grown up to. We helped take it, you know, so far, and now they needed to keep going and, and succeeding. And so I felt that my best efforts were more entrepreneurial. And so that's why we decided this is a good time, I think, to to step into something new.
1: So it wasn't a hard conversation with, hey dad, uh, I think I'm gonna go go do something different. It was a nice, easy off-ramp.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think everybody involved, it was very amicable, including uh, the new CEO of Perceptix and my dad. And, and that's actually how we've been funding the Tailwind startup. My dad is basically our board and he's been Fully supportive of that and helping us get this thing going, which is certainly an advantage. I don't I'm not trying to raise money or series A. We're just focused on building the product and serving customers.
1: When you leave a company, you know, the ideas, the creativity, you know, those those are effectively assets of the company where you were when those things were conceived. Was that a sticking point, knowing that there's a a PE behind the company now? Was that an issue in you going and starting this?
0: No, no, not at all. Because really, we're in a completely different space than than Perceptics. What we built was based on concepts, but we didn't build or try to rebuild anything that was actually being used at Perceptics, even internally as tools for the the sales team. We created a whole new proprietary approach to what we were doing. And a lot of it was necessary because what we created at Perceptics to automate content could only work at Perceptix. Whereas here, we had to build a framework that could work for any organization. And so we really had to fundamentally think about it differently. But certainly the idea for what we wanted to do came from our, our work there. And you could say it was based upon or the spiritual successor of some of the work that we were doing there. But no, Perceptix, um, we're very good friends with them and continue to, to stay in touch. They're also
1: very supportive of what we're doing. It's always great when you can leave on such great terms. All right, so you you grew up in an entrepreneurial household. One day, you, I assume, had a conversation with your wife, and I think you said you have four kids. What was that conversation like? Obviously, it's it's a big risk. Yeah. You
0: know, it was an interesting conversation. I think that we were so used to being in one career, me being in one career for such a long time that there was the trepidation or the anxiety, if you will, about making such a significant shift. I will say, though, that it didn't feel a whole lot different from when I was starting at Perceptix. So it kind of felt like kind of going and doing something like that again. You know, we had done very well, so we, we had saved a bit. So we knew we had runway. You know, if things weren't going well with the new startup, we had a bit of time to get things figured out. And that was part of it, I think, for my wife. She felt like, well, if you know if it doesn't work, you can always go back and get another job. We have some time to get that figured out. So I think that that helped quite a bit. But a lot of it was she just believed in the change. She thought that I would be more fulfilled and excited making this change. And for that reason, primarily, she was really supportive of it. And that's cool because I mean, it really showed a level of trust that she had in me. I've had a great marriage with Chelsea, and she's been amazing in that kind of way. When we got pregnant with our first, I say we, when she got pregnant with our first Dakota, who's now 11, I think it was uh, early 2012, she got pregnant. She was teaching third grade, and she had her degree in elementary education. And she decided, all right, well, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom now. As soon as she found out she was pregnant, she said, I'm quitting my job. And I said, well, you know, you don't have to quit yet. You can actually finish out the year and then you can take maternity leave and you'll still get paid. She's like, nope, I'm done. It's time to get ready for kids. And I really respected her for that because she really knew what she wanted. It was her passion, her dream to be a mom. So yeah, eventually we we would go on to have three and then a surprise number four. And it's been quite a lot uh, raising four kids. So they're our oldest is eleven, our youngest is six, so they're they're pretty close together, but it's been a lot of fun.
1: As a quick aside, my wife was also a third grade teacher and she also stopped working. She did actually finish out the year. Our son was born right before the end of the year. And I think she went back for literally the last day of class was her last day of uh, of yeah. leave. And so anyway, a little parallel. I think she did that because I think I think we found out she was pregnant in the
0: spring. And so she was right near the end of the school year, anyway. So she just didn't go back in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. So she did the same. That's funny. So same stories, even the same grade, huh?
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's that's too funny. All right. When you were talking about your 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 background, your education, one thing I didn't hear was, oh yeah, and I developed software on the side. Mm -hmm. You started a software company. Mm -hmm. How did you get the technology? Part of it going, or or is there a is there a part of your story that we haven't heard yet? You really are this uh, the super developer. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm
0: not a developer. Uh, I wish I was. I mean, I understand enough to be dangerous, I guess you could say. But I have a development team here at Tailwind. In particular, our head of engineering, his name is Dana Takeshta. He and I are are close friends. We worked together at, at Perceptics, and so when. And he's very entrepreneurial. I think that that's the key, is that on the side, I think he, he's created like four or five apps alongside his full-time work. And so when I was getting started with Tailwind, I approached him and talked to him about his advice. And then eventually he decided to leave Perceptix. And he asked me, you know, hey, could I come on and help you build this thing? And I was like, yeah, that'd be amazing. And so he and three other developers came on that he's helping run. And he's been the chief architect. And so it's so fun being in a place where you get to build something from the ground up, especially something that really hasn't been done. So, you know, a lot of my job has been developing the product design. You know, what is it that the platform does? What's the user experience? And then translating that over for the development team and for Dana to build out. And there's been a lot of technical challenges that I wouldn't have known how to solve, but he'll go, Figure it out, and we have a joke because he'll tell me, oh, "Andy, that's impossible. You can't do that." And then two hours later, he'll come back and say, "Oh, oh, check this out!" And he's figured it out. I couldn't tell you how many times that conversation has happened. But yeah, I definitely rely on a, a great team of partners on the development side.
1: I'm curious to see if this resonates with you at all. We are in the midst of, of building out some some things ourselves, and before we started this journey, somebody who I have tremendous respect for. CTO for, for big, big, big global software company. I mentioned to him what we were doing and he said, well, hey, I'm just going to warn you. It takes way longer and costs way more money to build software than you think it does. <laughs> does that land or has everything just gone perfectly smooth and you're, you know, constantly putting out new releases and it's it's cost efficient?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's so true. I mean, just in terms of the naivety <laughs> that I brought in to this project overall, man, I've learned so much in terms of how much I don't know. And that's really been humbling, but but great too, because we've been able to pivot very quickly. So yeah, we thought, we started out with a certain level of investment. I think we've now, we're have we now at like three times that amount <laughs> of what we thought this was gonna take.
1: Meaning you've raised more or?
0: No, we, we've spent, yeah we've, yeah, we've spent. So we've spent more than we thought we were gonna spend. It t- it's taken longer than we thought. But yeah, one of the big things that happened is in 22, all throughout 2022, that was really a solid year of development work with a team of developers. And as we were nearing the end of the year, at that time, our architecture actually had two different applications a front end and a back end application. And our front end was all JavaScript, Vue, JS, our back end was all Ruby. And those two applications had to talk to each other. And as we were kind of getting closer to the finish line, there were more and more problems with these apps uh, working together, and we didn't know if uh, the app was even going to be able to work. It was really sort of imploding, almost, if you will. And so we were faced with a pretty challenging decision. And we had, we actually at the time we had our front end development team come to us and say, "We think you should fire your whole back end team and let us rebuild everything in JavaScript." And then we had our back end team come come to us and say. We think maybe you should let go your front end team and let us rebuild everything in Ruby on Rails. And so, myself and our uh, head of operations—I mean, we're just like pulling our hair out. Like, what do we do? And do we stay the course and try to make this thing work? Do we lay off some of our developers and then rebuild the whole thing from the ground up? And then another—you know—a fourth option that was a real option was, or do we kind of shut this thing down because it's not working? So we ended up at the end of 22, it was January of 23, deciding to rebuild from the ground up the entire application as a monolithic architecture in Ruby on Rails. And Dana and his team did that in three months. And so by April of 23, we launched the new app. Amazing thing was, it was far superior to the previous app. And so our failure gave us an opportunity to pivot Rebuild and make it stronger and better. And because of what we learned, we were able to do it so much faster. And so that was a really important lesson. I think that, yes, it's going to take longer than you think, it's going to cost more than you think, but be willing to fail, fail fast, pivot, and then keep going. That's what we learned. And I think it's now we're we're in a really strong place.
1: Yeah, that's a great fail forward kind of a situation. Man, you guys rebuilt the whole thing in a quarter. Mm -hmm. Was that a lot of late night pizza runs and and Red Bull and coffee? Like, how did y'all get it done that quickly?
0: Yeah, I think Dana sometimes can just be a force of nature when he really puts his mind to something. So he was certainly putting in late nights and had an obsession that he brought to that project. It was fun for him because, you know, it really rested on his success or failure. If he wasn't able to do that the company was over so he rose to the challenge and uh, i think he loved that so he jumped into it was working incredibly hard late hours even in in cases where redesigns had to take place he he was even taking some of that on, on his own shoulders and just getting something done and then you know we're looking at it and we're like hey that works let's just keep going and so yeah, you you have your best laid plans, you have all these mock-ups and designs you do from a product management standpoint or product development standpoint. And then it's like when the rubber hits the road, a lot of that stuff can fly out the window. And you need to focus on what works. And so Dana's been very good at that. And I'm I'm really thankful to have him on the team.
1: That's somebody that's definitely bought in and more than that, like believes in what it is you're doing.
0: Yeah. I think th- so that's a really important piece. I, th- I think I heard recently that it's better to have a good product and a great team than a perfect product and an okay team. My team at Tailwind, a lot of us worked together before at our last organization. And so when we started this thing, there was sort of a built-in trust, if you will, in one another, in knowing each other's capabilities and strengths. And so we didn't have to go through that process, I think, that a lot of companies do, where you're trying to find the right talent or or find people that can fit the team. You know, we kind of went together as a team and we're like, let's do this. We're ready to go. And so there's that trust. And it's true, too, in a startup mode, it's messy. And I mean, so, you know, we're arguing and, and we're wrestling over what should be done. But the relationships are in place where that's safe to do that which has been very important.
1: Going back to the, okay, our front end, back end, don't talk. I guess two questions. Mm-hmm. Was the back end something that was already kind of pre-built and you were just putting a, a UI on it or had you built the back end from the ground up as well as the front end from the ground up?
0: It was the latter. So we had, the back end was built from the ground up in Ruby and then it was tying into a Vue.js front end application.
1: Okay. When it became clear that it was not going to work, some people would have just pushed forward and said that the heck with it, we're gonna get this out there. Yeah, Clearly that wasn't your intent. Did you have paying customers on the app at that point?
0: No, not yet. So we had a few that were interested, but we didn't sign our first customer until summer of 23 after we launched the new app. So thankfully we didn't have to deal with any kind of change management where that's concerned.
1: So you were two years, three years without revenue?
0: Yeah. Well, at 21, we had a very small team that whole year, and most of what we were working on was market research and product design concepting, that sort of thing. And there was only like three of us that were involved at that point. In January of 22, that's when we brought the developers on and really went full on into building the thing. And that's, I think, where we really started spending. And so for I would say that we didn't spend a whole lot in 21. We really started building the app in January of 22. And so, yeah, we're a solid now two and a half years, I think, into it. And then we have our first clients coming online this quarter and our first revenue this quarter. So that's exciting.
1: Talk a little bit more about the capabilities of the tool. You talked about the Apple story and, and proposal generation and, and things like that. Yep. But maybe expand on that and kind of walk us through the breadth of, of what it can do.
0: Sure. Yeah. A lot of what we're doing right now is talking to companies about their sales process and how tools and technology are fitting in to that and where there are some gaps or where there are some burdens that are getting in the way. And the idea behind Tailwind is that we want to look at, particularly around all the content that reps work with, where the administrative burden is keeping them from value-added time that they're spending on selling. And so an example of that would be the proposal was a great example. So back at Perceptics, our proposal took four to 10 hours every time we wrote it. And when we created using Word and Excel mail merge, we created the kind of a version of this proposal generator. I could just fill out a form in Excel and hit mail merge and it would build my whole 40 page proposal in about 15 minutes. And so now I'm not spending as a sales rep four hours manually editing a Word document. And every one of our sales reps had to do that. And so that's one element of what we're doing. So, for example, now with Tailwind, one of our first customers is in the medical industry. And they spent with a team of people over 20 hours on each proposal that they wrote for a deal. And that proposal was 100 pages in length. And it uh, would take them uh, weeks to get back to the customer because of how much time was being spent on it. And so we built a automation around that document. And that's what's unique about Tailwind. We're not selling a SaaS tool that you take the tool and then try to fit your proposal into the tool or you build a template in their tool, that sort of thing. We actually take our client's (laughs) proposal and we build our tools around it. And so what ends up happening is we tokenize every single piece of content. In this case, with one of our first clients, there's over a thousand things in that document that are variable, that can change. And so we have hundreds of tokens that sit throughout that document that then tie to a questionnaire. And as the rep goes through and fills out this questionnaire, which could be fill in the blank or drop down or yes, no, with three levels of nested logic even. So if you answer one way on a certain question, it'll swap out a page or a paragraph. And then within that paragraph, there's two more levels of logic that changes words or sentences or images. So instead of opening a a template and editing a 100-page Word document, they're going through and filling out a questionnaire. And then Tailwind is building the document for them. And then it allows you to publish that document in a digital sales room or download it to Word or PDF, so however you need to deliver that. And now the process of building that proposal is under an hour. And so they were doing 70 proposals a year at over 20 hours per proposal. So just the the man-hour cost was like 1,500 man-hours a year spent writing proposals. So they have a, a couple executives spending time on that, but they also have a whole proposal writing team. Well, now we're getting the 70 proposals they do each year to under an hour a piece. That's huge just from a cost-saving standpoint. That alone pays for the whole platform with Tailwind. But then you have the ROI of now we're able to create consistency. An accuracy with every single document that we generate. So we went back to the Apple story, right? She said, I couldn't find a typo. Well, when you're relying on a team of sellers that are all manually editing, I know in my experience, every single document invariably has a typo somewhere. And buyers see this, they notice, and it, it it's a data point for them. And it doesn't mean you're gonna lose the deal, but it, it's something we should avoid. And so when we can use technology to automate this, Now every single document is locked in. You're not manually editing. There's no more errors. There's no more typos. But beyond that, you know that across all of your offerings, they're consistent with one another. So you don't have, or another experience I had is you'd have rogue rogue reps go off and putting in deliverables that we don't do, you know? And so it creates consistency there. And then of course the speed and the responsiveness, instead of making a, a potential customer wait two weeks to get your proposal, you know, you turn it around that day, it's 100 pages long, branded with with their logo, their names, all of the content specific to their deal. They're sitting there, they get this, and they're like, how did they do this? This is amazing. And so, again, you're creating that kind of wow factor that Apple had talked about with me. There's a quote from from Steve Martin that I love, and I think that this kind of really encapsulates what we're doing. In 2007, he was interviewed by Charlie Rose and he was asked, what advice would you give to aspiring actors that are trying to break into the industry? And Steve Martin said, be so good, they can't ignore you, right? And that struck me because I think about our sales process today. One of the things that's really changed since COVID is we have precious little time to talk face-to-face as sellers with our buyers. And more and more in B2B purchase decisions, they're doing all of their research, evaluation, and even their purchase decision completely in a self-service online digital environment. Which means that it becomes even more critical that when we present content for our organization to a potential buyer, it needs to be so good that it sets us apart from our competitors. And so at Tailwind, what we're doing is we've created a digital sales room, we call it our showroom, And that becomes one place where you send or you launch or or publish all of the content that you're going to put in front of a potential customer or a customer when they're evaluating a project. And that could be things like like your proposal or your pitch deck or your NDA or your contract, an MSA, but it could also be things like case studies or white papers, it could be videos. You name it, we want to have it in that location so that it makes it very easy and engaging and so that it looks really great in that environment, it's branded for that specific client. It's mobile responsive. So it meets the buyer where they are and how they want to consume that information. And then again, it makes it so you can push a button and it's like, boom, get that content and it's done. You're not spending time editing it. And that's going to be one of the ways that you become so good you can't be ignored. But one of the other things that the system is doing that I think is really important is when you look at the changing landscape of buying behavior, another big change that's happened, Scott, is the buying committee or the number of people involved in making buying decisions has dramatically increased over the past few years, especially in B2B sales. So it went from being maybe a handful of people to now on average, there's seven individuals behind the scenes that are involved in making the purchase decision. Well, as a salesperson, most of the time, I have a relationship with maybe two of that group. The other five, I don't even know they exist, let alone being involved in the conversation. So one of the things that we're doing with Tailwind is that when you send content to your prospect, to your buyer, to the individual you have a relationship with, they're going to share it to those other five, six, seven people that you haven't met. And so with our digital sales room, when you share it with the team, it asks them to put in their name and their email address, and then it tracks everything that they engage with if and when they view that content. So if I send a proposal, I can see who looks at it. I had a real-life case just a couple of months ago where I was sending a tailwind proposal to a prospect that I met, and she had sent it to somebody that I didn't know, and I just see, oh, so-and-so read your proposal, and I looked that person up on LinkedIn. Turns out that was the the senior VP of the organization. That's the executive sponsor that's really going to be making the decision, and I don't, I haven't even met him. But now I've got his name, his email address, and I can see when he read my proposal. That gives me an opportunity now as a sell- seller because he knows when he was asked to put in his email address, I can send an email and say, Hey, I saw that you viewed the proposal. I want to introduce myself. Let me know if you have any questions. Now I have an opportunity to build a relationship with an executive sponsor that otherwise I wouldn't have known existed. And so it's things like that that we need to start leveraging the tools and the technology to create that better experience buyers have when they're evaluating our solutions, so we can really set ourselves
1: apart from competitors. Talking about competitors for a minute, there are some folks out there that do bits and pieces of, of what you're talking about, but maybe not all of it and maybe not as well. But there are some big, big players in the space. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Adobe. You're talking about DocuSign. You know, probably could list a handful of others. What gives you the confidence to be this David among Goliaths to enter this space?
0: Yeah, a great question. When you look at the industry, there's a lot, as you mentioned, there's a lot of companies doing a lot of pieces of this. For example, when you think about a digital sales room, I mean, man, there's, uh, I can think of at least a dozen companies that have that as a product and some of them very big companies. I know I think of uh, Seismic and HighSpot and Lego, just off the top of my head. These are large sales enablement platforms that have a digital sales room product that you can use to send content to a buyer. And then on the proposal generation side, you've got some SaaS companies out there like Pandadoc, Proposify, Quiller. Then of course you've got the content management, which are a part of those enablement platforms I just mentioned. So certainly there's no shortage of, of these tools. I think the key for us, Scott, is the right customer profile. I think there's a there's a segment of the market, particularly when it comes to the document handling, document generation and automation, that has no one to serve them. When you look at some of these proposal tools that are on the SaaS side of the market, they only work for companies that have fairly simple proposals. They can basically set up their template, drag and drop content, put in the e-signature, and it's like done, you ship it off. But when you think about one of the customers that we have with a 100-page proposal that took, takes them 20 hours to manually edit, there's nothing out there for them. And so I think we're, we're filling a need for a specific segment of the market. I would say B2B services, probably, and probably companies that are mid-sized companies would be a, a good ideal fit. But then you have a lot of companies, too, that take a look across what we're doing as you put those pieces together. So you look at pricing and document configuration, but then you put that together with the digital sales room, right? Because if you if you take the digital sales room products, none of those have document generation as part of it, at least in the way that we're doing it. And so kind of you put those pieces together and now it becomes an offering that's really quite different than everything else that's out there. And that's been pretty unique. I think that what's been difficult about Tailwind is we are sort of like the early days of Perceptics we've sort of created something that I have yet to find someone else doing the way that we're doing. And so part of what I'm trying to do is educate and get people to come along for this new ride, this new technology and this new way of thinking about sales content. That's been a challenge. You know, I'll do a demo and and people are just like, I don't get it. I, you know, I don't believe you can do this. I'm not ready for this. And so for me, that's actually kind of fun because it tells me that I'm in the right place. It means that we've built something that's thinking different than, than the rest of the market. And we believe is really going to provide a lot of value. I think, especially for those companies that have more complex content that they're editing all the time.
1: Thinking back to Perceptix, apart from the, the pain that you solved for, what other concepts, what other lessons learned, what other cultural things have you adopted as you have founded your own business? Hmm.
0: Yeah. That's a great question. You know, one of our values at Perceptix is we are a family. That was something that was pretty important to us is that, you know, one of the things that my dad would say is that we're in business for two reasons, to take care of our customers and to take care of one another and our families. And that really was the foundation of behind everything that we did. And I think that's something we really carried forward with us as being very important. This team that we work together as is one of the reasons that we do this to have fun together, to support one another, take care of our families, but also take care of our customers in the same kind of way. So I think some of those uh, values that we had carried forward, there's one value that we have that that we say start with yes. And the idea behind that is that back at Perceptix, because I was heading up marketing at the time, I did a lot of case studies with clients. And one of the questions that I would ask is, why did you work, You or what do you love most? I think the question was, what do you love most about working with Perceptix? And it's amazing how many times I heard the exact same phrase in the response. And it was, Perceptics always says yes. And that obviously was speaking to our willingness and our services to go above and beyond and do whatever it took to help our client become successful. So if they asked for custom development on an app or they asked the project manager to get some data to them or reconfigure some data, their perspective is that we always said yes. And that was one of the reasons that they, I think the primary reason that they really loved us, that that set us apart from other vendors. We had so many cases where we were told by customers, you're our favorite vendor, or you're the best vendor we've ever worked with. And it really didn't come down to the technology, it came down to how well we served our client. And so when we started Tailwind, one of our values that we created, it literally is called start with yes. And the reason we said start with yes is because the answer is not always yes, it shouldn't always be yes. You know, Sometimes a customer asks for something that is a bad idea that would harm them, it wouldn't be in their best interest. But I think the idea is that we start by saying yes. Yes, of course. We can do that, we can help you with that. Now let's talk about why and what we're trying to achieve. I think the heart behind that is that we're not aiming to nickel and dime clients for additional services or look for more ways we can sell consulting hours or say, no, we can't do that because we're not willing to put in the development time. We have a core value and we want to be about serving customers even if it means spending money and time to do that. And the reason it's important is because we found in our time at Perceptix that when we did that, it actually became a source of co-development of the platform itself. Every time a customer would ask for something, that's a good idea, let's go ahead and build it for them. Even though it's only for one customer right now, what would end up happening is a lot of the features that became available to the whole client base came from a single client saying, can you build this one thing for me? And once it was built, we'd ask other clients. They're like, oh, yeah, I want that. And so that, that's something that's a value for us, I think, that we carry forward. One thing that I've had to learn the hard way, and this is probably more a personal thing than it is a, a company uh, thing. I say it like this. Uh, Good is better than perfect is what
1: I've had to learn the hard way. <laughs> We say that a lot uh, around here too, say it slightly different, but same idea.
0: Yeah, because I've been uh, accused of being a perfectionist at times.
1: We have some of those too.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So I'll tend to get my hands on something and want to just tinker with it until I think it's amazing. The problem with that is that maybe it will get to a point where I think it's amazing. But in the meantime, we've lost the deal. (laughs) We've, We've not published any content. We've not gotten the app done. And so I've learned that One of my my good friends here, one of my colleagues, he always says, just ship it. (laughs) It's good, ship it. And that's something that I've had to learn. It's like, I got to let go and get to a point where this is good. Let's go ahead and move on it and then iterate, not continue to work on this until we think it's perfect because it's impossible to get to perfection anyway. And so that's something that I've had to learn the hard way because I've always had the tendency to want to perfect things.
1: That's a good lesson learned there. Learn to let go a little bit. Looking back at the vision you started with when you launched the company, has the vision for the product or the vision for the company and the culture has it changed at all since you launched?
0: The product, yes. The culture is still still pretty much kind of how we started with things. And again, some of that is because I think we carried forward from a, a culture we had we already had together from a previous organization. So that was pretty easy but the product definitely went through changes. So when we started in the very beginning, the conversation was really around proposals and contracts, and that's it. It was, you know, how do we create a tool that regardless of how complex it is and how much detail and editing there has to be, that we could build automation around it for that organization. That's where it started, but we quickly understood this is not enough. This is gonna be a nice-to-have, but a lot of companies will say if the only thing you're offering me is a faster proposal process that's not enough value right for this to make sense and so we started thinking well you know what is it really that is going to help companies that we need to think broader about and that's where the digital sales room component came in in the beginning So instead of attaching things to emails, we're creating a space where everything can be housed together. And this is where our naivety came into place. When we started developing that idea, we didn't even know what a digital sales room was. (laughs) And so we start doing our research and it's like, oh, this is a product that already exists and several other companies are doing it. But again, it was kind of fitting that piece together with the document generation that made it more valuable. And then we started looking at how we can do pricing for our customers, which we're doing now. We started putting together content management into that piece. And then we developed an idea around RFP responses, RFI and RFP responses, and looking at how AI technology can help with that, but embedding that process in the proposal platform that we built. So you can upload 100 RFI questions and then have the thing just automatically answer those questions for you. So that's, we got a roadmap now of I think a few more products that, that are coming down the road, but we didn't start with those. We started with only one idea. And the more we learned about our potential customers' problems and in this industry, it really started that scope creeping to uh, more and more things. And that's always a challenge too, right? Because you wanna stay focused and not try to bite off more than you can chew. But certainly we gotta find that balance.
1: I think about your start with yes, But then also, like, we don't want to try to become all things to all people. That's got to be a bit of a tightrope sometimes.
0: It is. It's always intention. I think that's one of the biggest conversations that we're having around here every day is, should we be doing this? Do we need to do this? And why are we doing this? And every demo that we do with Tailwind, there's a lot of things we've been asked for. You know, one of the early potential customers that we almost closed, they were not so interested in the document generation piece. But they loved our platform and they wanted to use it to do some enablement piece. They wanted to do some training for their sales team. So kind of take like a digital sales room concept and make it internal facing and use it as an enablement tool and post training content.
1: Like a learning management platform.
0: Yeah. And so what they want, what they wanted to do was use our tool to be a client facing digital sales room, but then be internal facing for exactly what you just mentioned. And we were thinking at first, yeah, we could do that. I mean, that's easy. It's basically just digital sales room, but internally facing. And so we started creating mock-ups and then we got down that road. And finally, I think thankfully we decided this is not the business we're in. This is a distraction. It could have been cool. I mean, some of the ideas we have with the product were were great. And that specific customer would have loved it, but it wasn't in line with the vision for where we're going with our tools. It's getting into learning. And really that's not what we're focused on. We're focused on that, the buyer experience and sales content. So that was uh, one example of where we started down a path and then pivoted away from it.
1: You talked about that uh-oh moment with the front end and the back end not talking. Have there been any other moments like that where you just kinda had your stomach turning and going, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do?
0: Yeah, I mean, we had a situation where some of the developers weren't working well together. And so in addition to making a decision about what the direction for the architecture, We also had to make a decision on a personnel level of you know who was the right key people to keep on the development team and who did we have to part ways with. That was probably the most difficult part of that situation. And that happened a couple different times. So we tried bringing in a developer who was very talented, but didn't get along well with the rest of our team. And so it was sort of like he was a bit of an island and really wanted to do things his own way. And again, what's tough is that he was brilliant, very hardworking, very fast, probably one of the most talented developers. But because he couldn't work with the team, we had to part ways with that developer. And it was the right decision. And so that was a very tough situation. And then, of course, when we rebuilt the app, we decided to part ways with most of our front end development team and then have the back end team take over the whole project. So those personnel decisions were very difficult. And I've, I've had a couple other. I tried hiring um, someone in sales to kind of be a BDR, a business development representative, and had him on the phones and on email and on LinkedIn and just going out trying to drum up some some leads for us and you know, made the decision after a few months to part ways with that individual. So I think for me, because I, I talked about the idea of family, like the team here is so important to me, it's really difficult when you gotta make a decision to part ways with an employee, someone that's part of that team, And um, I would say that for me, those have been the hardest moments. But ultimately, you got to do what's best for the business.
1: Even when it's the right thing for not just the business, but the person on the other side. Yeah. It's still hard. I mean, there's just no getting around it. It is hard. Yeah. And it's something that most, if not every entrepreneur is going to go through at some point.
0: And I think you and I both are believers in EOS, right? The entrepreneurial operating system. And one of the things that that framework talks about is the right people in the right seats. And I think that a lot of the mistakes that leaders sometimes make is they keep someone in the wrong seat for too long or they keep the wrong person for for too long because they're afraid of ripping that bandaid off or or that confrontation, or what the ripple effects might be if they rock the boat or make that big change. So it's almost like, you know, I'll suffer the consequences of not making a change because of what I perceive are the risks of making that change. But in reality, as leaders, I think we know in our gut, when something's wrong, we need to make a change. And we just have the fear of doing it. Something that EOS taught me is that the longer we wait to do that, the more problems are gonna compound for the people involved and for the business.
1: At this point, outside of the things we've already talked about, is there anything you would go back and do different? Hmm.
0: Yeah, there's a couple things. Uh, when we, when I first started Tailwind, myself and a couple other people that that we got involved, I would say that one of the drivers for starting this, as I've talked about, was the team. And I I almost put more importance on the team than I did what we were building, and that was a mistake because what I ended up doing was getting people involved before it was time for people to get involved, and so. Part of that meant that we spent a little bit too much money, more money than we should have, but it also meant that we had the wrong, a couple of the wrong people in the wrong seats. And thankfully that, that worked itself out over time. But yeah, if I could go back, I would have spent the first year with a smaller team and really just thinking through, probably with myself and one other person, what we were trying to do and do some market research and some concepting before hiring people and then waiting being patient and then saying, okay, now we're ready. Let's find the right person for, for where we need them. So that's one thing that I would do differently if I could go back.
1: You're a family man, wife and four kids. That's a, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Have you found balance between running a tech startup and family? And if so, how have you, have you gotten there?
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's nice that um, our offices are, are pretty close to where I live. And so I don't have a long commute. So that's uh, very helpful. My wife and I, a long time ago, made the commitment to do keep doing a date night together every single week. And so we would get a babysitter and would go out, have dinner, go see a movie and just sit and talk. And that was sacred time and continues to be. So where once a week we'll go take a few hours and we make sure that we're connecting and talking about the kids and uh, school and work and, and what's going on in her life and what's going on in my life, and that's been incredibly valuable. Anybody that's married, I would recommend that in a heartbeat to make sure to do that. And Then with the kids, the weekends are usually our time to really hang out with them. Just a couple of weeks ago, we took the whole clan up to Orange County, a place called Great Wolf Lodge. I don't know if I think you have one in Dallas. Yeah.
1: I can see it from my parking lot in fact.
0: <laughs> yes. And so we took them for uh, a couple days. Kids loved that. Just went on the slides with them and everything. So we we love to try to do that kind of stuff with the kids as often as we can. But yeah, I mean, we're working hard and we're playing hard, certainly finding uh, a lot to fill the time with right now. But it's going good. What's next? Oh, it's a great question. Well, I think for Tailwind this year we're focused really on getting some clients on the platform. And so getting to the market has been a big consideration. We've got a lot of leads coming in, so I think that we're doing pretty good with that. Once we have clients on iterating, getting their feedback on what the app needs, the next big development piece for us is going to be the RFP tool. And I think that's going to be really cool for a lot of organizations. So we're looking at completely automating the RFP response process, so you don't have to spend a lot of time doing that. So that's next for Tailwind. What's next for me down the road? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm definitely into the arts, into creative stuff. So I've done a short film. At some point, I would love to create a feature film, a feature length, so a theatrical length film. I have a couple friends that are in the film industry and that's something that we talk about. Probably will be a ways off, but that's one of those bucket list items, I think, down the road that I'd love to do. Yeah, and then uh, let's see the kids. My two boys are, are now starting golf lessons and so I, I used to play golf in high school and so I'm getting back into it a little bit with them and trying to get out to the golf course a little more, but I love watching them and it's funny too because how many kids do you have, Scott? I've got three. You got three, so you'll probably uh, resonate with this, but every one of your kids are so different and it's always fun Oh
1: my gosh, <laughs> watching that, right? could not, truer words have not been spoken.
0: So I look at my two boys, I took them both for golf lessons, and my oldest son, Dakota, he's very analytical, he's very intentional. And so, you know, he's working on his backswing and he's just slowly going back with that club, looking at it the whole way, making sure he's doing exactly what the instructor has told him to do. I mean, almost to the point where you feel pain just watching the kid, right? And then he gets it right, he comes through, and he loves it if he gets it right. He gets frustrated if he doesn't, does it again. And so he hits my 11-year-old. Then I have my 7-year-old son, right? And he could care less about getting the swing right. He just wants to smash the ball. Hard as he can. <laughs> as hard as he can. And so watching the two of them and their different approaches when they're, when they're taking lessons, it's the best.
1: <laughs> I love that. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming on and and sharing your story. We look forward to following the success of of Tailwind and your creative ventures.
0: Well, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on.
1: That was Andy Morehouse, founder and CEO of Tailwind. To learn more, visit Tailwind.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.